Some experts argue that normative power is an essential instrument in the EU's foreign policy toolbox and should play a central role in the debate about strategic autonomy. By exporting its democratic norms and values, the EU is capable of influencing other countries around itself, such as Ukraine and Belarus. However, some experts argue that this policy lacks clarity and consistency. As a result, the EU is not capable of exporting its values and norms to its neighbors as it would like to do. Hello everyone and welcome to a global perspective on European politics. My name is Aga Pairamov. My name is Tom Wagemakers. Today our topic is Normative Power Europe, the cases of Ukraine and Belarus. It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Marek Neumann and Dr. Ninke de Deucht. Both Marek and Ninke are assistant professors in the Department of International Relations at the University of Groningen. Marek and Ninke, thank you so much for joining us today. So our first question actually is for the both authors and uh, we can start maybe with uh, Ninke. So how would you define a normative power or what is normative power and how does the European Union use this normative power? Thank you very much for the question. Also, thank you for having me. So for me, a normative power really is the strength that comes from being a community of values, from being a security community. So I'm thinking about the appeal of the European Union's founding values, democracy, rule of law, fundamental freedoms, human rights, etc. In a way, it's the, the power to lead by example. And I always think that this was perhaps strongest from the part of the EU in the 1990s and early in the 21st century when we went through enlargement processes with countries in Central and Eastern Europe, countries that, of course, come out of a communist past, a communist past that was discredited, countries that wanted to turn their backs towards Moscow, focus on Brussels instead. And I think at that point in time, the appeal of the EU as that community of values was strongest. Not so sure about that at this point in time. All right, thank you very much. Do you have a concrete example of um, how this normative power was used? Because you mentioned that there was a lot of appeal to these countries in Central and Eastern Europe. But what's a concrete example of normative power? I think here it becomes a bit more difficult. Um, also in preparing for the podcast and going over your, your questions, I thought quite a bit about this. And I think normative power can be very useful as an inspiration, as a starting point for any kind of process of political transformation, so that you see this example of what you aspire to. But I think even in cases where it worked the most, so again, 1990s uh, enlargement processes, I think in the end, something else was necessary as well, namely a concrete reward in the form of, of membership. So I think that's precisely the problem for me with normative power to make it tangible. I think that's difficult. I think it's an inspiration, it's ideational, but to see it work purely at that level, no, I'm not so sure. And uh, in terms of this reward, this very interesting point. So can we say that normative power is kind of like a carrot and stick? So in order to make it effective, you need to also show the carrot as well in the end of the... Yeah, of course, theoretically, normative power could work all on its own. I think in reality, conditionality is needed as well, so that there is that example of what you aspire to. But especially when transition becomes painful, when you have to go through the daily motions of, of transition, you have to make tough choices, painful choices. What are these painful choices? What do you think? Why, why is painful? 
Um, I think everything that comes with economic transition can be very painful, can have a very direct impact on the lives of people. And maybe in the long run a positive one, but in the short term definitely not. So I think then if you have that, oh, but we will, we will join the EU. There is light at the end of the tunnel of especially economic transformation that can be very helpful. Okay. Uh, Marek, what do you think about this uh, definition of or the reflection of Ninka, especially about this uh, character aspect that you need to have conditionality and also very interesting point on painful transition. So uh, apparently, well, as a, let's say also IR scholar, I always assume that normative power is something less painful or maybe uh, I would say a positive way, but uh, Ninka is here approached more critically that, okay, it's not always that way. W- what do you think? Yeah, <clears throat> well, first of all, Also, thank you for having me. Um, it almost looks like Ninka and I prepared before because when I went through the questions, I wrote down things such as, you know, this normative ideal or power. It, it's really more of an ideal type of power, at least the way it was conceptualized by manners. Um, it should, in principle, also work without any sticks you know it should be a power of persuasion it should be a deliberative process it should be that you exert some power and the others see this as valuable enough to adopt it and also to internalize it um, very often examples that uh, Tom was asking about an example uh, examples that are brought about are the EU being uh, a leader when it comes to climate change policy environmental politics you know it is able to lead and if you ask me what how to define norm, normative power, then the most simple definition is that you have the power to set the new normal. You determine what is to be accepted as the, as the appropriate, legitimate way of conducting politics, but also of governing a certain society, and of observing certain rules and norms and principles. And if you have that ability to set that new normal, you are able to exert normative power. Then, of course, the question becomes, are you still exerting normative power if you're backing it up with sanctions? And I'm sure we're going to get to discussing Belarus later on. But, you know, once sanctions come into play, is this still normative power or is that are you are you just becoming a traditional coercive power? And another thing that I wrote down when preparing for this was that it really indeed very much comes out of this enlargement key, this transition politics when when the European Union for many countries, newly independent and newly sovereign countries of Central and Eastern Europe, um, was able to determine what the new normal is to be. And of course, there was this membership perspective, there was this carrot at the end. But these indeed very painful processes, not only in economic terms, but also in terms of changing your entire legal code of conduct, you know, changing how you adjudicate in cases of conflicts, changing or including the principle of non-discrimination, making sure that minorities are properly protected. All these things were determined, in other words, set, the new normals was set by the European Union at that time. But of course, there was always this idea that, well, if you don't do that, you know, that conditionality, if you do not meet those criteria, unfortunately, we will not be able to reward you after all. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very much uh, aligned with what uh, Ninka said a, a while ago. Yes, I, at the same time, I would like to say that I'm very critical also and skeptical of this concept of normative power. 
Why? It's been, yeah, because it can be also considered, and by many it is considered as a very hegemonic approach to who am I to determine that I have the right to set what the new normal is to be. You know, a, a very clear example after um, Euromaidan in Ukraine, when when the European Union finally did uh, sign those two association agreements with Ukraine, one of the conditions was that uh, the Ukrainian parliament passes LGBTQI legislation. Well, you know, the Ukrainian parliament was very, very much opposed to that and it, just, well, it does not really fit with what we stand for, with our values. And yet the European Union decided that this is the new normal to be adopted. So it, it can be seen as a very hegemonic approach to determining you know, what is to rule uh, the world, uh, what principles and rules are to govern our societies. But on It's, the other hand, someone can also say that there is no kind of alternative to replace what European Union suggests, like, for example, the rule of law or respecting the rule of law. So what would be the alternative, for example, democratic elections or check and balance uh, kind of things? They are also part of these uh, European kind of norms and values they are trying to spread. And uh, on the other side, I see the critical point, but what is alternative to replace this, like alternative way of doing it? Well, an alternative way, and I'm I, I'm curious to hear what Ninka thinks about it, but an alternative way would be that there is not an outside power that tells you on how to structure your governance systems and your governance structures, but it has to be something that comes from the society itself, from, from bottom up, if you want to call it that way, uh, and that it's a, a, a long-term process. Uh, transition polit- politics is never a short-term, it's a long-term process. And of course, it's being steered now by all sorts of experiences. It's being informed by all sorts of experiences. You look abroad, what has happened. That That's, of course, one thing. And mm-hmm. uh, if you get the chance to develop, um, establish your governance structures yourself. Another thing is when somebody tells you, well, this is what the law should look like. Okay. I think we can a uh, little bit uh, go in depth uh, with Ninke. Uh, Tom, go ahead. Yes, um, Ninke, in your chapter, um, you argue that normative power of the European Union vis-a-vis its eastern neighbors, such as Ukraine, right, is limited due to a combination of several factors. Uh, for example, the difficulties that uh, beset the EU when it comes to translating policy on paper onto policy in practice, um, the intricacies of Ukrainian domestic policies, and the role of the Russian Federation. Could you please elaborate on this? And also, what do you consider as the weaknesses of the EU's normative power that um, Russia and other Eastern partners can exploit to justify their foreign policies? Yes, thank you. Yeah, to start with the last point, because I actually think it touches on what, what Marek said earlier. Of course, the EU does try to sort of impose a new normal from above, and that's not necessarily reflected by what is happening in a country bottom-up. And so sometimes there can be a mismatch between what the EU expects when it exports its normative power and what is actually happening in a country. And I think in in that discrepancy, I think there's room for the Russian Federation to become involved because, of course, it it can present an an alternative to how you structure your government or how you um, organize your society. So I think that's an uh, an element to touch upon. And which which alternative can Russia provide, do you think? I think Russia sometimes plays the card of of being a more uh, conservative 
society of being uh, perhaps more adherent uh, to Christianity. And I mean, it's, it's similar actually to, to what is happening in Hungary, where Orban is also playing this card of we're more conservative, we're more uh, adherent to Christianity. So I think there is an appeal there also in response to the EU sort of imposing the new normal from above. Um, but I think there's also another element. The um, Russian Federation has very tangible rewards or threats that it can use and that it can apply much more so than the EU. And of course, that goes particularly for countries that do not have a membership perspective to begin with. So then the carrot of membership or the, the threat of, oh, we're going to withhold membership doesn't apply. So then the, the more tangible material side of the EU's involvement is not as substantial as I believe that what the Russian Federation can bring to bear. So I'm thinking here, for example, energy, both in terms of threatening to collect an energy debt, but also in terms of threatening to withhold the supply of energy. Um, so I, th I think in, in many ways, the Russian Federation, in, in a material sense, when we look at rewards or, or punishments, is, is much more material, much more concrete, and in that sense, a much more real neighbor to take into consideration than the, the EU would be. Okay. Uh, Marek, do you want to reflect on this? Yes. Yes, I, go I, ahead. I very much would like to, because um, I can support what Ninka has said now. Also, I've done some research in, in Russia itself, um, back then looking very specifically into what uh, the Russian policymakers, and, and, but also academia, thought of this European Union's initiative, to, namely the Eastern Partnership, and also this idea of we want to work closer together with those six uh, countries of Eastern Europe. And I was looking into what did the Russian side think about that, and also did it have any consequences for Russian policymaking itself. And it was very funny to see that in the beginning there was absolutely no concern for the Eastern Partnership at all amongst the Russian policymakers. It, the idea was it's not going to amount to anything, just as the European neighborhood policy is not amounting to anything. It's some sort of a framework where we can discuss uh, problems together, but it is not um, supported by any substantial financial means. Um, so there's very little uh, concern that the Russians had for the Eastern Partnership in the beginning. But this changed um, with Euromaidan, and not because suddenly the Russian side would think, oh, the European Union is so powerful that it is driving these changes. But, but what it was really concerned about is that what you saw in, in Kiev and in all the other countries was um, waving off European flags, waving uh, the shouting of European slogans, not necessarily EU-specific. I mean, it's not that they would have embraced the European Union for no matter what, but that there seems to have been some sort of an appeal amongst the society for these values, you know, for what manners calls these core values of what makes the European Union a normative power, this idea of democracy, liberal democracy, the rule of law, human rights, and so on and so forth. And this is what we see, where we see also the beginning, that Russia started to consciously develop some sort of a normative politics themselves, because up until then, they really could truly rely on this traditional idea of power, the carrot and sticks, we know exactly how to deal with the countries of the post-Soviet space. But suddenly there's this change um, somewhat uh, within, for instance, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation, which says, okay, but parallel to this, we should also start developing some sort of normative underpinning 
Now, I'm not saying that they became a normative power in, in, in their own right, but a normative underpinning that they can use to justify and legitimize whatever actions they're taking in the area. You know, they, and, and just as Ninka said, this is where they consciously started to develop that idea of let's present ourselves as the, as the guardian of traditional values, of, of family life, of, uh, you know, we're going to protect you against all that liberal nonsense that comes from the West. And, and so if you say this is technically, you could say, well, this is some sort of a proof that the European Union may have some sort of normative power because apparently the values that it transmits uh, are appealing at least within a part of the society. And once this becomes the case, then you see that also there is this other player, namely the Russian Federation, that starts to think about, okay, should we maybe think about developing a normative underpinning ourselves? So basically as a reply to the Russian, so it's uh, as a European normative uh, value. So it's not like Russia just wanted to start a new foreign policy, but it's always like reply to European Union. That's when I look at the EU-Russian relation, it's like European Union is trying to do something and Russia is trying to reply to that rather than Russia is doing something that EU replies to that. Or, Chicken and egg problem. Yes, right? it's like first? what comes first. Because I mean, Foreign policy is always choose two-way streets, right? It's always, uh, it, it's responsive to one another. Uh, it cannot be seen as separate from one another. It's not just reaction, of course, because I don't want to, use the word causality, but there seems to be some sort of interplay between the different foreign policies of both the European Union and the Russian Federation. And then, of course, somehow we're forgetting the countries in between. Yeah. And you have a question uh, to, to yes, this I would, directly? I would like to uh, follow up on this because we really see that um, <clears throat> right, this normative power has a tangible result in the fact that Russia becomes uh, tries to become also a kind of normative power on its own. But um, Ninke, you argue, you chapter that the normative power has a lot of limitations as well, right? Also because of the Ukrainian society and domestic politics. Could you elaborate on this? Yes, of course. Um, I think it goes back to what we discussed earlier, that the European Union is trying to set what, what Marek said, also the, the new normal. But I think um, Ukrainian politics, um, well, that's a world all of its own. And of course, for a country that had no experience with independent statehood so had to begin with state building with nation building had to begin with political transformation had to begin with democratization that is a process that that takes decades if not longer and so somehow we expect ukraine to all of a sudden go from being communist having a very quick transition and then becoming almost like us just adopting as if it's nothing all of those EU founding values. And I think the complex is way more complicated than that. I think that goes for a lot of the post-Soviet countries. And of course, Ukraine is, is perhaps a bit extra complicated due to having had also the Orange Revolution, going from a president who is pro-Russian to one is more pro-Western, to one is more, more pro-Russian, to one is more pro-Western. So there has been this going back and forth, with, which has made transition even more complicated. So sometimes it feels as if there's a mismatch between what the EU is trying to export and where Ukraine as a country is in terms of its road towards democratization. So I think really in terms of having that long-term bottom-up process to make something sustainable, I think Ukraine has a long way to go and it's not yet at that new normal that the EU is is hoping for. 
But what makes Ukraine different from, for example, Poland then in this transition? Yeah, that, that's, I think, a very good question. It's often said that around the time of the, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, Poland and Ukraine were comparable in, in, in many ways. Now, of course, they, they are not. Poland is in the EU, is, is in NATO. Well, it is having some downturns in its process of democratization, but still for a long time it, it, it was more or less a, sh a shining example. I think they're, they're two completely different countries with very different um, historical legacies, very different roads towards that transition. I, I don't think Poland in the 1980s compares to Ukraine in the 1980s. I think the leadership that they had in the 1990s was very different. So I think if, if you really look in, at, at the history of the two countries at a more detailed level, they're, they're so different in, in so many ways. And of course, it all falls in the category of post-communist, but I think that obscures the, the very profound differences between them. Okay. I want to go back to actually this, what Marek and Inka said in terms of EU-Russian normative power competition, because also coming from the post-Soviet, one of the post-Soviet countries, uh, societal level, there is also a negative image of the Russia. So I would say, don't you think um, one of the most uh, powerful part of the EU's normative, let's say, uh, values or power is to create this positive image of, the, of course, European Union has its own problems internally and own struggle as well. But uh, when EU fails to influence uh, the normative power of other countries, but one thing is always successful, creating a positive image uh, that uh, it's not because of EU that this normative power failed, it's because of the geopolitical reasons or external actors like uh, Russia. For example, uh, in Azerbaijan, it would say, well, when you say Russia, it's always about occupying your territory, creating fake states in the border, uh, uh, exporting uh, low-quality products, uh, back to the colonial reasons. So it's a bit more aggressive and negative image. On the other hand, European Union is more like... Uh, that's why maybe in Ukraine they were more inspired by that. How would you how would you say this? Like, is it is it that way? So, Marek, yeah, maybe sure. Um, well, first of all, creating a positive image is a very long term process. Um, don't forget that there's always a filter uh, in between what the European Union does, can do, and where it is supposed to really hit. So, I mean, societal level, there's the the filter of the formal politics. Um, so, what is the European Union allowed to do? The European Union certainly tries. I mean, we have, as part of the Eastern Partnership, we have a civil society forum. I think only yesterday there was a meeting of the civil society forum of, for Central Asia. So, I mean, the European Union certainly tries to support grassroots activities. Um, but again, these are also working within the constraints of the governance structures that are existent on ground. So absolutely, I mean, it's, it's for sure is a strategy of the European to, Union to create a, a more positive impression of its own in those countries. But if if this competes against something that can be very quick, um, whether that it comes from China, you know, with uh, with investments in the in the BRI initiative, or if it comes from Russia with very tangible um, energy deals that are um, visible right away, um, that receive a lot of attention right away. It's much more difficult to, of course, um, make yourself um, visible and, and to create that positive image. But I think you're right. I mean, the fact that um, during Euromaidan, we have seen uh, people 
waving European flags and not necessarily just EU flags. I just don't want to conflate Europe with the EU, right? But with uh, with referring to Western ideals um, and, and standards, that is something that the European Union could argue says, okay, there there is some sort of an effect that our involvement in the region has had with the society, um, whether it is long-term, whether it is it's going to remain that way, that's another story. Okay, and then follow up on this, because it's very uh, good perspective to say that it is a the like or evolution of the EU's normative power. It's kind of evolution process. It's not like one time started, but it's kind of a progress. So considering this, can you say similar to the Ukrainian crisis, uh, do you think the European Union follows a similar normative approach towards Belarus, or do you think the EU has learned its mistakes in Ukraine and now follows uh, upgraded or different normative policies towards this, or bit evolved? Yeah. Well, on that, first of all, I, we have to understand and realize that this concept of normative power is a very academic concept. I don't think that we would probably find the Europe, any European Union statements where the president of the European Council or the uh, high representative for the EU foreign policy says, we are a normative power. No, they would say we are a global actor that is informed and constituted by certain values. And of course, it is our interest, but it is also very natural to us and it is part of our identity to try to transfer those interests externally to other countries that are willing to listen to us, to cooperate with us, and so on. So it's a very academic concept. As I said, it's been reconceptualized many, many times. It's been criticized many, many times. To your question whether the EU tries to um, um, normatively influence Belarus uh, or in the same way that it did with Ukraine, I mean, those two countries are completely different. Uh, I'm not sure whether I would say that the EU has learned its lessons from Ukraine or in Ukraine, um, I think that it has never had the same approach towards Ukraine and Belarus simply because the recipient is a completely different one, right? You, it's Again, there, there needs to be another side to the story. There needs to be somebody that is willing to participate, to cooperate, to listen, to deliberate. And we've not had that with Belarus. And I think what you're alluding to is this idea that the European Union has changed its approach to foreign policy making or conducting. And um, in, in one of the chapters that we wrote, we coined this term normative instrumentalism, which is a very paradoxical term when you think about it. But we argue, and I need to stress that this was based only on upon looking at the EU's democracy promotion. You know, the EU tries to set standards in so many other areas, as banal things as safety standards in the workplace or production standards, ESO standards that are compatible with the EU's single market. You know, But we only looked into the EU's democracy promotion and there we argued that as a result of so many different factors, the EU has adapted its own position on how to and whether to promote democracy. And, and we say that it has become much more instrumental in its, um, in its dealings with democracy promotion as a result of post-Arab Spring, where maybe you grew a little bit disillusioned with the developments in the region, but also as a result of the financial crisis. You know, whenever finances and funds are limited, you have to think twice before allocating large sums of money to certain policy portfolios. So there were countries uh, that objected this big spending when it comes to democracy promotion. But we also 
see that reflected in this EU's global strategy where the European Union then says, okay, we're, we're going to adopt a principled pragmatist approach to foreign policy. And I think Belarus is the one that has actually benefited of that principled pragmatism approach because it allowed the European Union to get engaged also in countries where it would have thought twice before. Um, and But now with this principled pragmatist approach, let's see how far we can get with countries that do not uh, meet our standards uh, that we might have previously not wanted to work with up until last year, August. You know, whatever happened in August has... But uh, speaking on this democratic package, then don't you think uh, European Union kind of exporting democratic packages like one size fits, including, as you said, safety standards in the workplace, like also complex, sophisticated bureaucratic requirements not only the democratic standards, but also mistakes together with it, rather than, hey, in, in Ukraine, for example, we tried to export this package and there were some technical issues. Let's remove or repair and then for the next package, at least don't include them. Some, sometimes I feel like European Union, when they try to, I don't know, influence or try to engage with the third countries, they try to just uh, have this one-size-fits package and including the mistakes that package, okay, here is it. So how would you how would you say maybe Ninke? In a way, also I, I reflecting on Marek's uh, comments. In a way, I, I see your point. For example, when you look at partnership and cooperation agreements, very often the text is literally the same, other than that the name of the country is different. It feels like a, like a kind of a copy paste or a search and find exercise. Replace Ukraine with well, any given country. So I, I kind of understand where you're coming from with this one size fits all approach, but. I, I do agree that the EU is, is evolving somewhat in that sense and is sometimes taking a bit more of a pragmatic approach, as, as Marek was also saying. And I think Belarus is definitely an example of that. Of course, Belarus is, is in no way open to any kind of new normal or kind of values that the EU is exporting. Maybe parts of the population are, but the leadership definitely isn't. And I think the, the EU has sort of changed its its strategy, has changed its tactics, so at least en engage in, in certain areas, maybe also try and, and keep the opposition alive and, and, and hoping maybe for regime change so that then the normative side can take precedence again. But for now, Ukraine and, and Belarus are just completely different. And I think the EU's changes in, in its approach reflect that or fit with that. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, and I would like to ask, uh, because in this discussion we've emphasized the inconsistency of the normative approach, right? Um, and the lack of unity. Is there a way that the EU can solve this despite the pragmatic approach already? Is there something like a common European foreign policy that could um, solve this issue? Uh, what do you think? Let's start with Nike. Well, if I was a very optimistic person, then yes, I think that maybe would be very beneficial. And well, here's to hoping that someday it will happen. If I take a somewhat more realistic approach, then I think that the European Union is so incredibly diverse in terms of its membership that it's becoming actually more and more difficult to speak with a single voice, especially when it comes to the normative side of things. Of course, the Russian Federation is very adept at looking at which EU member states it could try and foster a close relationship with, of course, in the hope of trying to uh, undermine 
EU unity. I mean, let's face it, the Russian Federation is way more adept at that than the EU is at trying to 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 keep its unity going. So um, do we need a common European foreign policy? Well, perhaps, yes, it depends on how you define the goals of the EU. Do I see that happening in the foreseeable future? No, not so much. I fear it's going to be more of a muddling through. And I think that presents a lot of opportunities for the Kremlin. But I'm not sure, Marek, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I would also like to add that um, you know this lack of unity, this internal divisions and all the very many very complex and problematic difficulties that many of the individual member states are facing on their own makes it increasingly difficult for, for Brussels to make any legitimate claim to be a legitimate actor to set the new normal with everything that we see not only happening in Poland and Hungary but in so many other countries, including some of the very well-established and consolidated democracies of, of the founding fathers of the European Union, it becomes increasingly difficult to, to try to go to countries and say, well, you should really adapt this norm, adopt, sorry, adopt this norm, and you should really internalize um, this particular rule in your own national legal code of conduct because, uh, because we can show that it works, because we can show that it works. It's a bit hypocritic then, right? Yes. It's a very easy argument to make that it's very hypocritic. Yes. So basically, Absolutely. if we summarize today's, let's say, findings or the conversation, we could say normative power is a very complex and also challenging concept to implement in practice. And EU needs to approach it uh, pragmatically. And uh, states or the these application states should consider not only the benefits, but also the disadvantages of these policies. But then, of course, the question is whether we're still talking about normative power at all or if we're talking about much more traditional understandings of power. But but yes, you summer, I think it's an incredibly complex concept that has been, as said, reconceptualized many, many times because it has been recognized as some sort of an ideal. You know, I mean, Manners, who developed it, he himself says it's the EU does what it is. Or not only that, but he also continues and he says the EU should do what it is. Um, so it, there's also a very normative element to the EU has the right or even the duty to pursue certain norms in its foreign policy. Yeah, does oh, it? I think uh, we need another podcast or another episode uh, to discuss uh, these uh, perspectives. Well, I want to thank uh, Marek and Ninke for this fruitful and very interesting conversation. Personally, I have learned a lot and I hope our listeners and audience will also enjoy it. Thank you very much for joining us today and don't forget to subscribe our podcast on Spotify and other websites. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Bye.